This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is not present today. Uh, I know you were waiting for him to say that. Uh, unfortunately, he's had a family emergency. He's had to run off. As you know, this would be the first show he's ever missed, so it's very unlike him. Um, but he is going away shortly, and uh, we couldn't reschedule at all. Um, and we've got a, an overseas guest, so he said, please do go ahead Continue the podcast. You're the better host anyway. And, uh, he's going to kill me for that comment. And please, uh, just do the podcast without me. So we are doing the podcast with Atramon. Obviously much happening in the country. Uh, the expropriation without compensation narrative continues, uh, driven forward by left wing idiots in the media and uh, useful idiots as we've referred to them previously, as well as our radical uh, National Democratic Revolution parties. Uh, so all is really not well. I thought it'd be interesting to speak to a guest from uh, the UK, uh, someone I follow on Twitter, someone um, I've uh, heard speak before, uh, because he's got an interesting take on both conservatism, socialism, and it's important to keep uh, these concepts understood. If you're listening to the show and, and you haven't listened to some of the stuff we've done before, I'd recommend going back and listening to, to those podcasts as well. Uh, but let's let's get straight into it. A gentleman by the name of Sebastian, welcome to the show. Hello. How are you, man? I'm very good, thank you. Great. Uh, Sebastian, all right, so just a little bit of background on you. You are studying at the moment at the London School of Economics. Yep. Where a whole bunch of your colleagues are studying economics so that they can believe in things that economics doesn't say at all. <laughs> There's a fair few of them. Yeah, uh, I actually came came in, came across some of them on your on your timeline a little while ago. Very very interesting people. Yeah, I mean, London School of Economics is interesting because most people are just there to get a good degree and go to work afterwards. So they're not too politically charged, especially not on the wrong side of the spectrum. But you yeah. do get the odd crazy. Uh, yeah, which it makes it fun though. Well, yeah, you know, I think all universities are, I suppose it is fun. It depends. It's fun until they sort of are in uh, control of power structures because inevitably <laughs> they're authoritarian. Um, and oh, you, yeah. you must believe, you know, it's wrong think and, and all of that stuff that, that comes along yeah. with it. Uh, yeah. So, and all the universities seem at some level to be starting, to, well, not starting, have been infiltrated for decades in some respect, um, in the, in this way. Well, I'd imagine some, something like, like LSE would have been protected. To, to an extent, just because uh, economics uh, doesn't work on the left. Yeah, I mean, Hayek went to, Hayek was um, teaching at LSE back in the day, and he had um, all of his arguments with Keynes, who is, yes. is not so, is not a socialist <laughs> economist, obviously, but very, very big on government spending, government yes. intervention in the economy. So you would think that from the tradition that LSE's inherited, it would be quite free market, but I mean, in an undergraduate course, they don't get you charged enough on economics to, to get annoyed about things like that. But there's the general consensus, I think, amongst the students that, that think about it, aside from people like me, mm. is that there should be much more intervention. There should be, you know, big brained Wojaks deciding, uh, everything that's going to be produced and consumed in the economy. 
Yeah. And that's, uh, I think, has seeped down into the general population who, who generally, when there are problems, uh, turn around and say, well, what is the government going to do? Uh, oh, the no, the government needs it? to fix this. <laughs> that's, mm. that's the knee-jerk reaction of people. Not, and they do, um, if, you, if, you, if you stop them for a second and go, what has the government really ever fixed or done properly? They'll say nothing. They'll get that. Um, but uh, it is the knee-jerk reaction of many people. All right, so yeah, it's, it's funny. You, you are uh, a conservative uh, in mm-hmm. the real sense of a conservative. Just before we, we got on air, uh, I was saying that you know you have a whole party named the Conservatives at the moment, um, who in their past have, have have certainly espoused conservative views and, and beliefs, um, but currently mm. they seem to be swaying quite heavily away from that. Is that a fair um, sort of analysis of the situation? Yeah, I, I don't think anyone apart from card-carrying members is really enthusiastic about the Tories in the UK anymore. I mean, they piss off everyone. They piss off the classical <laughs> liberals because they, they implement these sugar taxes and they ban mm-hmm. straws. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you take away someone's chocolate bars, they get raging at you and think you're a socialist. Um, and then they piss off the Conservatives because they just don't do anything that's... Cons- I mean, what are they conserving in this country? Mm. They, they, you know, sometimes you get the odd piece of environmental protection where they don't want you polluting the countryside or something but but that's about it that's what we can think of really in the public mind yeah and and uh in terms of just quickly in terms of i know it's not your area of expertise but what do you see playing out in terms of the politics there because you've got uh i think most people will know this you you know you've got uh prime minister may who's who's by all accounts, been quite a dismal failure. Uh, <laughs> you know, obviously the left doesn't like her because she's the head of the Tories, um, so they think she's a yeah. failure. But I think even the Tories would admit that she's mostly been a failure. Um, yeah, it, it's her Brexit stuff that's really made her unpopular. You, have you heard of this dichotomy between soft Brexit and hard Brexit? I, I have, and there's the the agreement, the Chequers agreement, is it? Yes. Yeah, so just explain that a little bit more. Okay, so essentially, after it was right after the European uh, membership referendum, European Union mef- yeah. uh, membership referendum, that the media and politicians started talking about this soft versus hard Brexit thing. It mm. had never been mentioned before the referendum in those terms, but it suddenly popped up, I think, as a way of just saying, well, we'll go for the middle ground, which is soft Brexit, which is Brexit in name only. In yes, and that's um, how we win. Yeah, and then obviously there are a few... Uh, different obviously there's a lot of different characters playing out in the tory party there's there's proper levers like boris um mm. who is always getting flack from from everyone apart from i think people who find him funny and conservatives uh because he's he he wants to leave the european union properly mm-hmm. and then there's uh and then you've, you've seen this basically this this evolution of the, the prime minister saying okay well, well we'll go for this deal and this one will be pretty hard and everyone was uh, thought this was okay mm. and then she came out with this checkers deal um under very odd circumstances she was away at this this um basically the country getaway of the government called checkers this you know this big country house um and apparently told all of her cabinet that they can either agree to support her deal or they can walk back and get a taxi from the end of this mile long country driveway so <laughs> and obviously you know, being being politicians, I think most of them just wanted to save their careers. Boris and David Davis resigned. So, yes. but, but anyway, essentially, it's it's soft Brexit. Is where time. you're it's at going, now. Yeah, and no one's happy about it. She's not realised that whatever you do with Brexit, you're going to piss off roughly half the voting population. 
So you may as well pick one thing and do it well and get, you know, satisfy the maximum number of people. If you try and temper Brexit and Remain, everyone's piss off both parties. Yeah, everyone's exactly, unhappy. Exactly. And, and of course, you know which side I want. Yeah. And, of, and then what's insane is that that's actually driven people uh, either to be less enthusiastic uh, around her program and, and the Tories, uh, and as, uh, has Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> leading in polls. Um, obviously, oh. there's no election just yet, but but he's leading in polls. If if there was an election today, the polls say he would win it. Uh, yep. And this is this is in a, a month where <laughs> it's it's been it's been exposed. I mean, we knew he he was friends with Hamas, and we knew that he was uh, heavily anti-Israel, and there's been a lot of anti-Semitism around him, and and he's he's cozied up to terrorists. This was kind of known before, but when you get sort of photographed laying a wreath at the grave sites of 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 the Munich terrorists. Um, <laughs> you yeah, know, and, and yet he is the most popular political figure, you know, in, in office at the moment in the UK. It's, it's, it's quite nuts. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to say that I understand it. And I always try and ask myself what the other side's thinking, but I, I've tried. I just do not understand how people, people who claim to be fighting oppression can then support someone who loves terrorists. I just do not understand. Yeah, I, I can't get it. it. it I tried. It, it, it is quite baffling. It's also quite baffling that the same sort of people are, are sort of protesting Trump when he when he rocks up in your country. Oh, I uh, love that. You know, <laughs> you know they have this massive big Trump thing. Um, so when Trump came on his visit in summer, you know they crowdfunded this balloon. Yes, um, and it was a massive disappointment, and that shows you how much the left can deal with uh, planning the economy. So if they can't get a fucking balloon right, you ask yourself, well, can they plan an industry? But, um, so, you know, so they're all tits up about Trump coming over. Where were they when Erdogan was here? Where were they when the Saudis were here? They're nowhere to be seen. Um, and it's because they're told what to get angry about. And, you know, they hear someone say something that's questionable about women. And to them, that's worth more than state-sponsored terrorism. Yeah. Morons. <laughs> All right, good. So we got you fired up. Which uh, let let's get let's get into conservatism because uh, okay. Which before before we came on, I said to you, I'm a classical liberal, which means I'm actually different to a conservative. Uh, mm -hmm. And often there's this sort of thing where the right is lumped together. So uh, if you're a classical liberal, you're on the right. I think that would that in the current modern day that would be correct. Uh, certainly, uh, if you're a conservative, you're on the right. But then the problem comes in is, you know, if you're a, if you're a sort of fascist or, or <laughs> a white supremacist Ku Klux Klan person, you're also on the right. So then what happens is, is you, me and the Ku Klux Klan guy gets, get put into the same box and nobody wants to have any dividers in that box and explain like where someone would fit in. The same as, no one would want to explain where sort of a moderate liberal fits in versus someone who's now calling themselves a socialist or a social democrat or a communist. There are yeah. dividers between those, those individuals. Um, so let's let's get into conservatism. Okay, go for where, it. Where do I begin? Where do you, I don't know. Tell, tell me how you got how you got. Have you always been this way? You, you no, actually. So I I um. Because of when I was – so I went to grammar school and I was always a bit of an oddball when I was there. I, 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 like, to, I like to read quite obscure books and so – Not I, Harry Potter. No, bloody <laughs> hell. I've, some people's understanding of literature extends as far as J.K. Rowling. They should be shot in my opinion. But um, that's beside the point. So um, 
so so I, I was at the school. I was a bit of an oddball, and to me, libertarianism was just perfect because it was this idea that you could do whatever you wanted. No mm-hmm. one else was going to take away the benefits that you had made for yourself, sure. and 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 you similarly couldn't do it to anyone else. So I was a big libertarian, um, and then when I I moved school and I started asking myself, what is it that's valuable in a nation? What is it that you would actually seek to protect? And it struck me as I just asked myself a lot of odd thought experiments. Like, for example, if you believe in absolute property rights, you would be completely fine with someone buying St. Paul's Cathedral and then turning it into apartment blocks or something like that. Sure. And as a conservative, one of the differences between conservative and classical liberalism is that conservatives tend to see rights, um, you know, know, in, in the natural rights sense, as subservient to higher ends. And one of the ends that you would consider it's a Serbian to is culture. So I don't think that someone's property rights should be able to, say, buy a grade two listed building and then demolish it. I don't think you should be able to um, use your individuality to destroy the culture of a nation. Mm. Um, and what, one, of the, one of the main reasons why that's important, not just because things like art and, and music and language are important in themselves and lead people to have fulfilling lives, is because the conditions under which people can have a free society don't just pop up because everyone sits together in a room and signs a contract called the social contract and then decides <laughs> to have all these rights. Which we never um, signed. Yes, precisely. So the actual way that people form a society is because they already have a shared sense of belonging and then the law and the, you know their constitution and whatever else they, they legislate is mm. just um, reiterating how they already feel about each other, about each other, which is that we have a shared sense of belonging. We want to work together. These are the rights we're going to have to do this. The, um, one of the guys that influenced me a lot, he's a modern conservative thinker. His name is Roger Scruton. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. I have, yes. Yeah, so he writes about something called a first-person plural, which is, I think is a really nice phrase. It's the idea that before you make, in inverted commas, a nation, you all get together and you already have a shared sense of belonging, you use the word "we." You no longer, you no longer say the word "I" and mm. "myself." You say, you know, "we ourselves." You can refer to what your community is doing and know that there's a general understanding. And so, I think one of the most important things today for conservatism, especially in an era of multiculturalism, when they'd have you believe that a world where nations are filled with people with as little in common as possible, we're supposed to be more free and more happy. Mm. You have to ask yourself, what is it that makes a nation cohesive and work together? And I think it's, it's a shared sense of belonging. You know, it's speaking the same language. It's understanding the same values. It's being able to reference the same heroes in your history and the same novels in your stories. You know, you mentioned Harry Potter. Everyone in the UK knows who Harry Potter is. And if I wanted to be cringy, I could make a Harry Potter analogy and everyone <laughs> would understand that I was referring to something as part of the collective belonging of people being, in the being United British. Kingdom. Mm. Yes, yeah, so, so that's, that's for me, the, the main difference between conservatism and classical liberalism. Classical liberalism is, is promoting freedom, and conservatives are suspicious of how much freedom you can give people before society starts to bear, you know, before it starts to strain society. Okay, f- fair enough. So, so do you think, I mean, the conservative project to me seems to have changed over the years. Um, mm-hmm. and ju- just because there has been some, some movement, uh, if I look at American conservatives, for example, uh, you, you know, 
the, the, the Republicans have generally con- a conservative party. They represent the conservatives in the United States. I think that would be a fair comment. Some people would argue that now with Trump, um, in, in, at the head of the party, basically. Um, mm-hmm. but there has been some movement on certain things. Social issues seems to be the big one. Um, so, whether it's a view that the battle's been lost on something like gay marriage, for example, which conservatives 30, 40 years ago would have been the people against gay marriage. And now it's difficult to find people arguing too much um, against that position, maybe just yeah. because of the way it is. Uh, and, 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 and it's, it's kind of a norm now. Um, do you think, do you think conservatism's going, been through a change or is going through a change or needs to find itself again? Yeah, big time. I'm not, I'm not sure if you can hear that massive noise. Someone's decided to start yeah, drilling a, next to me. Oh, is so, it drilling? Okay. I, I apologize for that. No, it's no really problem. Convenient. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a real life podcast. So it's no problem. Yeah, well, that's London for you. Everyone's always digging up half the city. Anyway, um, so, I mean, conservatism in the UK has always meant something very different to conservatism in the United States. Uh, you know, there was a war of independence for a start. So mm-hmm. what the US is trying to conserve was totally against what the UK was trying to conserve. The U.S. had this, you know, uh, idea of a constitution that would have been considered extremely liberal at the time because, yes. you know, you're, bre- you're breaking away from a state that's been controlling you. You want lower taxes. You want more freedom uh, in terms of economics, in terms of religious freedom. So the, so conservatism in the states is, is very different. It's much closer to classical liberalism mm. um, than the conservatism that I was talking about earlier, or at least um, – or at least – that's what it's been taken to mean. I'm not sure whether the founding fathers thought about hostile religions, for example, being cultivated in, in their, within their borders, but that, that's that. Um, in the UK, conservatism, yeah, conservatism has, has been taken to mean basically economically uh, liberal and socially liberal as well. And yeah, I, I don't speak to anyone my age, to be honest, apart from a few uh, friends who I always have political chats with i don't speak to anyone that even understands that there could be a, an idea of conservatism or, or supporting the tory party and then being socially conservative yes so it just doesn't occur to them it all that the conservative party is about for the majority of people i think in the uk what they think of uh, when they when they're not always thinking about politics is for people on the right is you should be allowed to keep more of your own money and that will incentivize wealth creation and for people on the left, it's you stand for all the rich bastards in the FTSE 500 um, and you clearly hate the coal miners. I think that's probably <laughs> the image that we have. But no one ever, ever, ever talks about social issues. Well, you, 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 do, you, you do often hear people say, I'm economically conservative and socially liberal. That's a, that's yeah. a relatively common refrain, uh, yes. which I suppose in the current day would mean something to the effect of, I like low taxes, I like a relatively smaller government, um, but eh, whatever you want to do in your bedroom is not my issue, and um, <laughs> I don't really care what religion you practice, et cetera, et cetera, those, those sort of issues. Um, yeah. you, you do care more about those things? I'm not sure whether I care more about them because it's, you know, it's no good debating about whether we should be teaching our children the culture of our country when the economy is falling apart and people are starving to death. So the economy is very important too. Mm. But I think that I think that the economy isn't necessarily what makes life worth living. So, I, I mean, if you live in a country where you're extremely prosperous. So, so okay, outside of university, I live in Dubai. Um, and I've lived there for about a year and a half now. And that is 
just a hellhole of material. The only places to go. I mean, you just see endless Arabs wearing the traditional attire, wearing, uh, you know, driving Mercedes G-Classes, and they'll turn up at the shopping mall, which is like the fourth shopping mall within a 10-mile radius. And that's all you can do for the whole day because there's, there's literally nothing to do. I mean, if you like modern architecture, it's interesting, which I don't. I despise it. So the only place that I like, really, is, is seeing the traditional Islamic architecture, which, is, which I find personally interesting because it's all based on geometry. In Islam, you're not allowed to depict... Um, human, it's, it's frowned upon to depict human, human beings. forms, yeah. Yeah, so their art is always based on mathematical equations and patterns, and so it's quite interesting to see a completely different style of architecture. But that's all I can do in Dubai. And I asked myself, well, look, you, you might be really prosperous, you might be creating great conditions to go clubbing and go shopping, but do I want my kids to grow up here? There's nothing really, there's nothing exciting about it. There's, there's, I mean, there's not even adherence to the religion very much amongst mm. the population. There's, you know, there's no literature, there's no art. The museums that I go to, they're in Abu Dhabi. So I ask myself, what do I want in my country? And economics is like, it's a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient for having a really beautiful place it, it, to live, in it, my it, opinion. It's interesting because, you know, we have uh, higher rates of, of uh, mental illness now than we've ever had in history. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we haven't been keeping those statistics very long, but certainly we're more prosperous than we've ever been. For example, uh, a middle-class uh, person in the United States or in Britain, for that matter, um, lives better today than – in fact, even, even the lower class lives better today than someone from the upper class did 100 years ago. Um, yeah, in, ter right. in terms of the, the progress we've made, uh, just simple things, refrigeration, for example. Yeah, um, it's incredible. I mean, domestic appliances, if you think about how much, I mean, literally half of the population, uh, women, would have been essentially enslaved into household serfdom, having the, the amount of labor they had to do. Yes. And the refrigerator and microwaves and, and washing machines, this is just freed up. So, so economics can really do good things for people. Sure. And, and, and so we're more prosperous than we've ever been, certainly in the West. And, and, and I would argue some of some places that aren't necessarily the West, but have certainly adopted some of what the success the West has had. Um, but there doesn't seem to be as much happiness um, and as much prosperity. And it's, it's interesting. Uh, it, um, I, in, when I mean prosperity, I, I mean more in a not in a wealth sense. I, I mean it more in a sort of well-being sense. Yeah. And and I wonder if that's not linked to finding happiness within sort of cultural things, as you're referring to, mm. um, and, and, and whether we've dispensed with those too easily. I suppose that would be the central thrust of, of modern conservatism, that we need to sort of find, find those things and preserve them where they exist. Yeah, I read a book recently on exactly that. It's, it's one of these little, almost pamphlet books, I think only mm. 100 pages. It's mm. called Tribe by a journalist called Sebastian Junger, if I remember correctly. And this guy... He, he paints this story of when he went hitchhiking when he was a kid and then he goes to um, the siege of Sarajevo and he goes to different war zones and he's basically talking about why is it that in largely peaceful Western societies people feel this sense of um, you know nihilism, of, of not belonging to anything, whereas yeah. in war zones people actually report being happier than mm. people who are living in, you know, in apartments in Western cities. And he talks about how he thinks this is because people lack a sense of belonging. And when you have times of struggle, people are forced to come together. And all of those evolutionary circuits which human beings are designed to have to make us feel good about cooperating and enjoying each other's presence, they get fired up again. So our existence is almost too 
peaceful and too nice yeah. to drive people together. Uh, but the interesting thing about, about that book is that he he has a very left-wing view on it, I think, actually. He takes almost this Rousseauian idea that society's corrupted the individual instead of being something that's clearly been progress. I mean, we don't die of, of tuberculosis at the age of 26 anymore. Mm-hmm. And then he does this bizarre thing <laughs> where he goes on to... He's, he basically... So from his conclusion that we need to feel a sense of belonging in order to, in order to be happy... His conclusion is that classic left-wing cosmopolitan conclusion, which is that to make us, us as much, you know, to make us as happy as possible, let's just extend, extend belonging to the entire world. We'll all be part of one race, the human race, no matter what your values are, no matter whether you believe in yeah. certain things that people have fought and died to protect. That all cultures uh, and, are equal. Yeah, exactly. And we'll all be, um, we'll all be, you know, sunshine and rainbows forever because no one will ever feel any sense of being apart from anyone else and i just completely disagree with that i mean for a start i don't want to belong to certain cultures and certain religions and whatnot i have no desire in fact i vehemently oppose it and if they started trying to push for these things in my country big time then you'd have to I don't think the democratic process would be enough to, to, for me to register my resistance to it. You know, so I don't want, to, you know, go on, go on. No, no, sure. I, I think a lot of this is also based in, I was listening to something the other day, um, this notion of people being inherently good. Um, and, and, yeah. and many people believe that, that, that most people are good people. Um, and, and, you know, evil, it takes a lot for, for, for evil to thrive, actually. And, and that's completely untrue. People are capable of good. People are capable of evil. And actually, yeah. you need very little evil for evil to thrive. So you can, uh, go t- attend a school for, 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 for 10 years and, and everyone there is good except for one guy who decides to wake up in the morning and bring a gun and start shooting people. Um, yeah. that's only one evil person amongst hundreds or thousands. Um, and, and, then evil has shown its head. Um, so yes. this, this idea, and, and I, I feel like this plays a lot into, uh, the, this, you, you referred to multiculturalism and, and, and that sort of view. Um, that plays a lot into this. Everyone ultimately is good and they just want to live their lives and they don't want to bother their neighbors. And that's not true. Some people do want to bother their neighbors <laughs> and some people yeah. are, are, have bad ideas and some people's cultures are bad. Like they're just bad. Like <laughs> they, they, they seek to dominate. They seek, they seek to, to enslave or, or murder. Uh, and, yeah. and we seem to, have lost the ability to uh, differentiate uh, what is good from what is bad because of this belief that everything ultimately can yeah. be good. I think it stems from, I think the reason why a lot of people want to subscribe to that idea is because they see themselves as fighting, you know, fighting the global forces of oppression, whatever that means. You know, they'll, they'll go out and they'll, they'll, um, they'll get fired up about colonialism because sure. you know, a university professor or Huffington Post said something on their Facebook feed or whatever. Um, they'll, they'll get fired up. They'll start believing that there's this global conspiracy against anyone who isn't an old white man. And then, of course, the people who they're trying to protect often have values that not only harm those people because they're screwing over their own countries and their own ability to succeed, but they're also screwing over anyone else who those values touch. And so the people who are, you know, fighting oppression have this uh, dilemma here. They've got to decide between either admitting that some cultures are better than others and some values are better than others 
in which case they've got to criticize the people they're claiming to protect. Or they can just deny that there's any sense of good or bad. They can, you know, support these ideas of moral relativism, where, you know, you tell someone that there's this tribe that sacrifices children, and they'll go, well, it's just their culture, you know, it's, it's beautiful diversity, which you mm-hmm. probably do it in London, um, or something like that. Um, and so I think that it's, it's, there's so many contradictions with this idea that you've got to protect um, all of the oppressed people across the world from, you know, this evil, nasty Illuminati of white guys. Yeah. Uh, and then you ha- you trip over yourself trying to basically <laughs> say that everyone else is perfect and everything uh, that's wrong in the well, world is because of a bunch of Christians or something. There's there's also quite poor reasoning. Yeah. Often uh, things like that you find, say, this tribe that that murders children, uh, and the 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 excuse isn't just oh well it's their culture, but it often comes along with a, a false equivalence such as oh well America bombs children, so uh, that's the same thing. Or something like that. So there's a lot of um, weak thinking around some of these ideas. And, and let's get to the weakest sort of uh, thinking that uh, happens uh, on a global scale, which is called socialism, in my opinion. Ooh, and, of course, we can keep the – it's the socialism-communism spectrum. The way I view it really is that they're not different things. And if you understand what Marx wrote uh, and you go back and read – uh, socialism was the beginning of a pathway to communism. Ultimately, you cannot have yeah, that's, you have that's to the first whole point, yes. you, you have to have a rising up against the bourgeoisie of the working class. Uh, they topple the bourgeoisie. They take control of the means of production. Yeah. Uh, and then through a process of redistribution, you ultimately end up where everyone is exactly equal, i.e. communism. Uh, yeah. So, so if you're socialist, you really are communist. You're just sort of, um, a soft communist, so to speak. Uh, and, mm. and, and, you know, if you admit that you're just communist, then fine. Uh, let's, let's, let's get into a little bit of your, your, your dislike for, for socialism. And, uh, oh, obviously we've got it rearing its head in South Africa with, with, you know the government wanting to take take back yeah. uh, property, uh, abolish property rights, um, really nationalise everything they can get their hands on. Even though they've proven that everything that is currently nationalised, our airline, for example, is pretty much a complete mess. Mm. I mean, the problem. So, so I'll talk about a few economic problems with socialism because I find it so interesting that so many people can make such big mistakes, and then I'll I'll talk about something that is. That is, I think, the reason why these mistakes are made, the main reason why. So, so let's take the example of the expropriation of land. The, the problem with, with collective land ownership, I mean, you see this in the United States where the federal government owns land, is that no one in particular is responsible for it. So, so in China, um, after Mao's land reforms and, 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 you know, Mao started changing the economy around. I think it was in the eighties mm-hmm. that this bunch of farmers working on this farm. And of course, because yeah. it was all, it's all about communism. It's all about the totality of everyone being equal. They had to share the farmland. And what the farmers did, and if they'd have been found out, they would have been executed was that they divided up this piece of land into four or five plots, you know, depending on the number of farmers there was. And instead of all four or five farmers looking after all of the land together, they each looked after their own piece of land. And what that means is that when you work hard, you receive 100% of the benefits. Whereas if you're if you're in a pool of people and you work hard, so you put in 100% more effort, you'll only get 10% out. So the, the idea of collective ownership is ag- exactly against the idea that um, 
you should you should basically take risks and then you should get the rewards for it because it incentivizes you doing new things. So these Chinese farmers, they something like quadrupled the output of their farm just by dividing up the exact same amount of resources but more effectively, and privatizing the gains that you get from working yeah. harder. So when you – go on, go on. And their model spread. From what my understanding of the story, I think it was in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, but their model actually spread to multiple villages to the point that the output was so great um, that the government it, – it caused reform, essentially. Um, and yeah. it, it caused the Chinese government not to um, – do anything about it essentially they let this happen because it was improving um the production exactly i saw i'm doing an internship at the moment at, a, at an economics think tank here in westminster in the uk and one of the funny things that they told us yesterday was that so, so you've got these um i think it's you've got mao and he basically wants to make the chinese economy better so he gets in a room a bunch of the best technocrats and a bunch of the best marxist theoreticians and he gets the technocrats to decide what's good for the economy. And then he gets the Marxist theoreticians to define whatever the technocrats say as Marxist. So, so China's got this interesting thing where, you know, they've still got this whole communist party and whatnot, but there's yes. a lot of, they've only, they've only succeeded because they've tempered it with capitalism, which is hilarious. But, um, so, so anyway, the main problem with socialism is that it disincentivizes more efficient production because you're not giving anyone a reason to work harder. If you, if you are, if you're one of a thousand people who collectively owns a farm and you work literally twice as long, you're going to get no more fruit or, or meat than anyone else because your input is going to be a drop in an ocean. So you'll never work harder. And so people just, the economy falls apart. So that's the first problem. The second problem is, is I think the even greater one. And this is, this is a really interesting thing from a conservative and classical liberal perspective. It's the idea of spontaneous order. It's the idea that just because of incentives, you don't need to have someone planning the economy. You can just leave people to do their own thing. And as if by magic, just like an ecosystem which arises and, you know, it doesn't need someone telling which plants to grow where and which insects to eat which plants. It just happens over time. And very quickly, you get a really brilliant, efficient system. There's, I think it was Gorbachev went to the United States in the 80s yeah. and he saw a supermarket and he said, my God, who is planning this supermarket? Brilliant. <laughs> and of course, the, the miraculous thing, the, and I can't get my head around this. I still can't. It just seems like magic. It's just pure capitalist magic. and It really pisses off lefties. Is the idea that if you leave people to their own devices, they don't just cause chaos and then a bunch of capitalists take over and, and start exploiting them. They create systems where no one in particular knows how it works, controls how it works, but it works beautifully and it adapts continuously and it creates prosperity. So spontaneous order, the idea that you actually, someone planning stuff actually makes it worse. This is what Hayek um, called the fatal conceit of government. The idea that a bunch of guys in a room think they know better how to run the economy and what people want than millions upon millions of consumers. So the two problems of socialism are, are it, it wrecks the incentives to be good at stuff and usually the people who you put in charge of making things good are awful at it compared to just the average person in the street. Yeah. And I think both of those things speak to, to, to bigger concepts. One is, is sort of the human condition uh, yeah. and, and human nature, which is, you know, the left goes to, great lengths these days to uh, convince us that we are all equal or we should be striving to all be uh, to equality um so the the right says look we 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 should all have equal rights um and those generally most of us believe in negative rights not positive rights 
So yes. the thing that don't doesn't so just for those listening that, that don't know the difference, negative rights don't require the work of anyone else or anyone else's effort essentially uh, to yeah. exist. So freedom doesn't require anyone else's effort. People just need to leave you alone. Um, whereas uh, something like healthcare is a positive right because if you make healthcare a right, well then a doctor and a nurse and whatever are obliged to provide you with a service. Uh, and if you're in a country which can't afford that service, then the doctor and the nurses must be a slave. Uh, so the, the one they, there's this push towards this idea of equality. Um, everyone's the same, um, and factually we're not. Uh, so just uh, one of the ones that 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 is quite popular at the moment is obviously men and women are identical. There is no <laughs> there is no functional difference in any way between men and women. Um, and so we, we, we get into these weird sort of gender fluid arguments and these 72 genders on Facebook and, and, um, all these kinds of sports debates, uh, because we are trying to deny that men, for example, are physically stronger than women, a, a, a fact, just, just as it is, um, or, oh. or that women are better at nurturing than men are on average, um, because we don't want to admit that you know, women might, might be better at parenting or whatever it is, uh, in a certain sense. Um, so, so there's this, this push towards equality, this denial of, of, uh, human nature, um, and, and, and what humans are and, and how we function. Uh, I think that speaks to the first part. Uh, certainly not everyone, if, if we were all farmers tomorrow, some of us would be really good at it and some of us would be really crap at it. Just mm. as right now, there are people doing the job any of us are doing and some are much better at it than others and some are already terrible at it and hopefully the terrible ones will find something else to do um so that that's the one side that you've spoken about and 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 the other side is 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 obviously um speaks towards just freedom in in general and liberty and that's uh that's obviously an ongoing an ongoing fight with with those who 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 want others to control them, you know, the, the clever men in a room who can all decide for us how our lives should be lived and they know better. They know better for us. And um, it's interesting because how do you feel statism falls uh, both on the left and the right? How do I feel it falls? Yeah. So, so I mean, the right, the right has used statism to, to enforce their, 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 go their goals and so is the left. Um, yeah. the, the left has, has, uh, I don't think even arguably, I think the left has factually been, been number one better at it, but at the same time worse. So, oh, yeah. so, so they just uh, admit they want it. Well, that's one. And, and, and secondly, when the left gets control as, you know, Mao, Pol Pot, uh, um, Stalin, Lenin, uh, they kill hundreds of millions of people. Um, they, they, they far better at, at, at being quite vicious, um, to get mm. to their end point. Um, yeah. but, but there's a danger, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm very wary of the government, of all governments. I really just want them to kind of get out of the way. Uh, and there's a real danger of both sides using the government to enforce, to enforce their, their, their endpoints. Yeah, there is. And the interesting thing about, uh, classical liberalism and really any philosophy that respects human freedom is that you, you'll have people on the right wanting the government to do one thing and you'll have people on the left wanting the government to do another thing. Mm. And in between, there's a tiny group of mentally sane people saying, <laughs> can the government just not do anything, please? Which is fascinating. 
I mean, I'm surprised it's not a more popular idea, for God's sake. Yeah, it, it, it yeah, it, it, look, I, I think, I think where the balance comes in, it's a pity Ramon's uh, not here today, actually, because Ramon, um, is an anarchist. Um, he says he's pragmatic, so he kind of gets that, you know, we're not there just yet and, and we might never get there and, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but but essentially he would prefer an anarchy. He would prefer a state of uh, no state whatsoever, uh, just social mm. contracts, uh, actual discussed and agreed upon social contracts between individuals. Um, right. You know, he 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 kind of likes likes that view. I I understand the government's role in certain in certain aspects, but it's interesting how little people are able to move away from government being able to do things. And I think I kind of get it to some extent. You know, often people tease libertarians about mo roads, you know, <laughs> because because it'll be that's one of the one of the weaker arguments about libertarians is why why does the government need to do the roads? You know, we can do yeah, the roads yeah. ourselves. But I think average person goes. I actually have no interest in knowing how the road happens. Like, I don't care how it gets planned. I don't care who tars it. I, I just want to drive on it. And I, so I think a lot of people look at it and go, well, if the government's just going to make the road happen, um, then fine. The government can exist for that purpose. And then they multiply that by many, many things. And yeah, this is the problem. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and, and I, I suppose it's a slippery slope in some respects because it starts off with the roads, for example. Uh, and then when you get to the point like in the UK where you have the NHS, uh, and we yeah. have, uh, our government trying to introduce something quite similar here called the NHI. Uh, the difference is, is we have a much smaller GDP and only about uh, 10% of our entire population pays tax. So, oh, <laughs> it, 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 like, it, if you think the NHS has problems, you can only imagine what, what that's going to do to, to healthcare in this country. But, yeah. um, there's this dependence that gets created as we sort of say, well, the government will take care of that. I'm not really interested in sorting it out for myself. Yes. I think it's also because it's just by virtue of who is asking the questions and how they ask them. So you'll often, it'll often be people, say, suppose you've got a bunch of academics sitting down and they're talking about, um, say they're talking about the economy. If you, if you read the, the Western canon of political philosophy, starting at Plato, and I hate that bastard. Um, <laughs> Aristotle fan, could, are you? I love Aristotle. Yeah, Plato, Plato and Aristotle, their, their duel, I think, is just present all throughout history. But Plato, um, you know, the way Plato solves his problems about society, he just sits down and just asks, how should society be? Oh, I'll, j I'll just plan every single little detail, including how educated the leaders are. The original, the original central yeah, planner. Yeah, exactly. And then he goes off and, and, and so he sits down in his room, decides what he wants everything to look like. And then there's just this assumption going on that someone, because he's a big brain wojack, is going to employ all of this for him. So when people sit down and they think they're having an educated discussion about how to solve problems in the economy, there's always this, this, this implicit notion that after they've decided, they'll just hand this piece of paper to someone and he'll go off, send everyone who doesn't agree to prison or, or or something like that, and, and then and then go and employ it. And so, for me, I think it's the style in which we ask political questions actually implies certain solutions over other ones. And it means that we all have this conception of, well, the government should solve it first. And it took me a while to, to get out of that thinking. It, it takes most people, I think, to ever get out of that thinking. I, I, I think even children, you know, as children, we kind of raised a lot of, <laughs> you start seeing a lot of this stuff, um, when you're around kids, uh, you know, in parenting and, and all the rest of it and, and you start seeing 
sort of these ideas which sort of work at a child level, but they really don't work at an adult level. Um, you know, yeah. like sharing is caring is, is, is a great example. Um, I mean, that is <laughs> oh, the yeah. ultimate sort of socialist <laughs> redistributive, um, motto. Uh, and, yeah. and perhaps it's, it's good for kids to learn to share amongst each other. Uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, but right. when, when it gets applied, not a, between brother and sister or, or, or two kids who are friends or whatever it is. And it must be applied across a whole uh, society. That's when you start hitting problems. And I, I, the government is a, is a similar idea because this government is this sort of ethereal thing, especially when you're a kid and a teenager. Um, mm. you don't, you, you kind of don't connect the government as being just average people who got sort of hopefully voted into positions and do things. Um, And some of the things they do are right and some of the things they do are wrong. You kind of just assume, oh, the government, it's got this official sort of seal and stamp. And so if the government does it, it must be right. It's like a big parent, isn't it, for uh, for all of the kids that never really quite grew up? Well, absolutely. And this is, this is what's happened is, is we've, we've, we've made the government into our parents. The government must provide us with uh, our health care. If, if we need food, the government must do that. Um, yeah. The government must, must look after all of our needs instead of trying to be self-sufficient in many respects. Yeah, and what people don't realize, this, this always gets me, that, like, that the government should pay for something. The government doesn't have any money. It yes. has no money whatsoever. It's Absolutely. not a profit-making organization. It's taxpayers' money. So when you say the government should pay for something, what you mean is your kids are going to pay for it because it'll put you in national debt uh, big time. Or you mean uh, the, the 1% in inverted commas will pay for it, which will either do what it did in France when they put the income tax up to, uh, you know, top tier up to something like, Something ridiculous. 90% like 80% yeah, something, something yeah. ridiculous. And it'll send them all abroad or it'll disincentivize it or it will mean that you've got a government planning how to spend that money instead of entrepreneurs. I mean, who do you think is going to be better at spending money and creating wealth in the economy? Someone like Steve Jobs, who grew his business from a garage um, and made one of the most powerful computer companies on the planet or some git who went and studied, I don't know, policymaking at a at a university and then decided that he now knows more than the greatest entrepreneurs to ever have lived. It's absurd. I hate it. It just pisses me off. Now I'm pissed off about economics. Here we go. You've, you've done it. You've been raised. Fine. You can read some Hayek to soothe yourself. Um, ah, <laughs> so yeah, it, I, I think that's, that's a perfect point. Um, just around, around who pays for things. Uh, and, and as, I've said we we've brought this up on the podcast many times before, but the government, as you, as you correctly point out, very succinctly, is the government doesn't have any money. They 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 have your money, um, or exactly. or they have your future money. Uh, we see uh, governments, many governments, being in in massive amounts of debt. Uh, that massive amount of debt is to pay for your inverted commas free healthcare or your inverted commas. Uh, free schooling or free tertiary education or whatever. There's no yeah. such thing as free. This idea of free as well is, is quite interesting, uh, in this, in, in the sense of it, it, people feel that if there's nothing leaving their wallet or their bank account, then it, 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 it's naturally must be free. It just gets sort of produced and um, without realizing the yeah. potential damage down the line. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever come across Henry Hazlitt's economics and what yes, great. He, uh, that- he, great book. Yeah, I mean, I've studied economics for four years now, and I think that that and um, that and Hajun Chang 
I think are two of the guys, if you, if you're not studied economics before, you should definitely read because they're just brilliant. So that's a recommendation to your listeners. But, um, one of the things he points out is interesting is that you have to ask yourself what's going on for all groups at all times with this policy that I'm employing. Don't just look at the immediate consequences. And when you talk about healthcare, say, so what, what people will have you believe is that you'll increase taxes just a little bit for everyone and then you'll all get this magical free healthcare. But what you're forgetting is that if each person is taxed, say, £5 a month extra, that's £5 a month they're not spending in a shop and then the shopkeeper would spend at the petrol station and the, uh, the guy who works at the petrol station till will then spend out for dinner with his wife or something. So you have to ask yourself even the tiniest bit of money that you're taking away to create this new magical lump of thing, uh, healthcare, for example, is, is actually having a huge impact on the economy when you do it with everybody. Mm. Um, and that's something that I don't think the left can get their head around. I mean, we were talking about national debt as well. And one of the things, this is another like classic contradiction that I've tried to understand. And I just do not with, with classic lefty thinking, um, is this idea about sustainability. So you'll always hear the left you know, certain lefties, environmental lefties, not that there's anything wrong with wanting to protect the environment. It's a noble cause, I think. Um, banging on about how we need to be more sustainable. We need to use this and that material. We need to ban this and that. We need to make sure that we're not destroying the environment. But then when they think about getting their kids and their grandkids and their great grandkids into irretrievably high levels of debt that they will never be able to pay off, that to them is fine. It doesn't ring the sustainability <laughs> alarm bell. So, you know, look after the environment for your generation because it makes you feel good about having some fucking dolphin skin bag because, I don't know, um, what, Lush sold it or something. Yeah. But if, you, if you're talking about sustainability in terms of economic terms, in terms of whether you're living according to your means, it just does not occur to them. And I can't grasp why they don't make that connection. It's so obvious. And, and in fact, I don't know what the UK numbers are. South Africa's already basically bankrupt. Our debt to GDP ratio, I think, is 60% at the moment or getting close. Um, but, but, uh, the, the, the US, uh, if I remember, I might get the order wrong, but in 2026, I think it is, um, Medicare is going to go bankrupt. And uh, in 2032, I think it is, their uh, entire social service system will go bankrupt. So uh, one of two things is going to happen. They'll have to tell pensioners you don't get, uh, you know, in 2032, you don't, you don't get anything anymore. Thanks for putting that money all away those years, but we've, we've yeah. spent it. Um, or they'll just have to refinance. Um, which is what governments seem to think is is, is, a, is a solution. I suppose if you're only in office for four or eight years or ten years, um, then maybe that is a solution because by the time the bill comes around to pay, it won't be your problem. But there, exactly. there is there is a real misunderstanding of the unsustainable nature in which uh, these things are, are, are held. And and even when people point to you know you know one of my frustrations on social media is is people saying things like. I'm a social democrat, not like Venezuela, actually like Denmark. Um, th that drives me insane um, because there's a complete misunderstanding of the fundamental, firstly, functions of uh, a country like Denmark um, – or Norway or any of those countries, uh, mm -hmm. where, whereby they, ha the government is actually has a very free market. So the government has not interfered with the free market, but what they have done is they have built their, it will tax their populace to, to almost to death. Um, but, uh, somewhere like Denmark, you pay close to 80% of everything you earn goes to the government. 
Um, yes, just, uh, I, just, think I think it's Sweden 60% or something. Just to, just to put that in context, if you work for uh, 12 months of the year, you are working and earning nothing for 10 months of it. Um, and you, yeah, you get things in return, inverted commas, things in return. Um, you know, if, if you get sick, you will get treated at healthcare. If you never get sick, then you only, you were working for nothing. Um, and if your neighbor gets sick, you're paying for him. You, you're literally working for your neighbor. Um, so if that suits you, but the other thing they forget is that those countries have, for example, uh, large oil reserves, uh, which yes, puts and in, also, yeah, um, that they don't, their defense spending, I mean, they, they, Scandinavia, for example, borders Russia. So you would expect, yeah, um, heavy expect defense, have high defense spending. But it's, I mean, to, for want of a better phrase, it's massively subsidized by the United States. Mm. So if it wasn't the case that the US was actually doing big parts of the economy for the Scandinavians, they'd have a much, much higher tax bill and their system wouldn't work. There's a good paper that the think tank that I'm working at has produced called Scandinavian Unexceptionalism. And it basically debunks this paradise utopia belief Mm. that a lot of lefties have when they point, um, they point north and say, well, look at these countries. They're (laughs) all doing fine. Yeah. They work beautifully. You know, I mean, and by the way, these countries are extremely, uh, homogeneous. They're Mm. extremely, uh, until recently at least, suspicious of anything to do with multiculturalism. They are, of course, Christian countries. They've inherited that tradition. They're no longer, uh, pagan and, and whatnot else. So, so, Again, it's another case of lefties not seeing any further than they want to see. But yeah. I mean, by the end of this podcast, I really don't think we should be surprised by that anymore. But it's it will perpetually annoy me. Well, we we shouldn't be surprised by it, but it's unbelievable the volume of evidence against uh, those beliefs and those views and those ways of doing things in the world, and yet. You know, I mean, I'm sitting in a country right now which is literally following the exact same path of Venezuela, of Zimbabwe, mm. of Cuba, um, of communist China, of communist Russia. Um, we are, we, in fact, uh, the, the, the policies that are, are informing all of this literally, quite literally come from the Russians, from, from the communist party. So, so it's, 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 it's quite astonishing that Given all the evidence and uh, all the sort of test cases over history and over and over again, uh, that we still seem to need to have this argument, and it, it's 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 a perhaps the psychology is, is a more interesting yeah. discussion around why um, this has to be uh, repeated. Yeah, I mean, I've got a theory about that. But, Go for it. Um, before I before I mention it, it's just the you know you, you sometimes hear these young kids say you know well Marxism is nice in theory. But it's, it doesn't work in practice. Hmm. And I, I just wondered to myself, did you read Das Kapital? It's <laughs> shit in theory. It's awful. He literally gets every, every single fucking thing you could possibly get wrong with economics. He gets wrong. He gets immediately wrong his idea about how goods and services are valued in the economy. Because yes. He has a labor theory labor. of value, yep. which is wrong. Yep. He, he dis- distinguishes, I think erroneously, between use value and exchange value. The idea that a good is useful in and that determines one price if you like but exchangeable in another way and that determines another price when of course use value and exchange value are entirely related so you just go step by step through the book and every single thing that he says with very few exceptions you can just you can just like scream at him and say but did you read the other economists around your time so for these bloody lefty kids i mean they don't okay i appreciate it not everyone can has the time in the world to study economics, but everyone has the time in the world to consult common sense. 
And if you want to talk to someone for five minutes and take out an economics textbook, mm. and by the way, it wasn't written as a conspiracy to keep capitalists on top. It was written because 300 years of theorizing and thinking about why human beings do things they do has led us to these conclusions. Like just the very basics of supply and demand is enough to start questioning this bullshit. Mm, absolutely. It's, it's weird. But the thing that this is the fallacy that I think um, drives socialism and drives this constant perpetual belief that left wing stuff, um, you know, redistribution is the right idea. So you mentioned about when, you know, when we're children and we see our parents as a kind of government and then everything's solved by the parents and then that attitude transfers over. And I was just wondering to myself about, um, you know, when you have a pizza and you've got your friends, if I take one more slice of pizza, it necessarily means that one of my mates takes less pizza. So taking slices of pizza is what you call in game theory a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. And the left-wing conception of the economy, it is that distribution of wealth and income is zero sum that is if i've got a big house that means that someone else out there must have a small house if i've got lots of healthcare, it must mean that someone else has got no health care yeah. but of course free trade is is not zero sum this is the, this is again like the basics of economics if there's two people let's say joe and jill and joe's got a pie and jill's got 50 quid and they they exchange this. The reason they do that is because Joe is better off with 50 quid than he was with the pie, and Jill is better off with the pie than she was with 50 quid. So all trade, just be- and the proof of it is that it happens, otherwise people wouldn't do it, is positive sum. The economy is a positive sum game. When people, free tr- when people have free trade, when people can unlock their talents yeah. and their hard work, and potential. You, yeah, you end up with a bigger pizza, as it were. But the mm. left-wing conception of the economy is that the amount of stuff you have is fixed, and that means that in order to get a fairer society, there's no point incentivizing wealth creation. There's no point incentivizing creating a bigger pizza. You should just reallocate the pizza. And that's the main problem. It's something that is always – it's referred to as zero, um, yeah. zero something. And, and as more of your friends come to the party, what then happens is everyone gets a smaller and smaller pizza, unfortunately, to Precisely. the point that you're just eating crumbs. Exactly. Until someone turns around and says, hold on a moment, maybe we should bake another one. And then you you get the miracle of capitalism because someone's really good at making pizza and they go and do it. Mm. Um, oh, I, I just, I we, just we, love capitalism. We, we have a know? good example of, of exactly what you've just said in South Africa and unlocking potential and, and, and it not being a zero-sum game. So uh, go our government built – of these things called RDP houses, uh, for, so a lot of the population, obviously, after 1994, um, was w- living in shacks and, and still are for that, that matter. But, but one of the successes of our government is that they have built somewhere in the region of 12 million houses, I think it is. But these, right. they're not particularly good houses. They, they, they're very small and they, a lot of the, there's a lot of quality problems in terms of who they got to build them because, of course, it's the government. But anyway, they built these houses on these plots. Um, the problem is, is that the people who live in these houses do not own the houses. So they get, they get given the keys, but they don't get given the title deeds. And, right. and there's long been an argument of uh, our think tanks here, um, and our civil action groups, certainly on the right, that people should be given title deeds to their properties. And the argument always from the left is, oh, but if you give them title deeds, they'll just sell the houses and then be homeless. I'm not realizing that, for example, if someone wants to sell their house, firstly, that's their decision, uh, and they'll make a plan for where they live. And if they want to leverage that house, for example, you can't even leverage the house at the bank for a loan because you don't have a title deed. 
So right. you can't send your kid to university uh, against a leveraged asset because you don't have a leveraged asset. Uh, and this huh. is, this is, uh, I think a, a really good example of, of, of an area in which uh, we've been practicing a zero sum game in this country on, on housing, for example. That's interesting. It's, it's interesting that they don't let people sell their houses because otherwise people would. No, the, sell go- their the government owns them. I mean, the government. Yeah. So those, those houses are still government owned. Yeah. I mean, in the UK, um, amongst the other things that Margaret Thatcher did that were very good, there was a big push towards, you know, this, this phrase property owning democracy and the idea that people should have a house. They should have something to, to take out loans against to, and to unlock further prosperity. And whatnot. But, but the interesting thing about not letting people sell houses and not letting them own them is if they want to sell a house, unless they're drastically misinformed, it's because that s- selling the house is good for them and their family. Yes. Maybe they want to downsize. Maybe they want to move somewhere else. Maybe they want to go and live in a much smaller house but send their child to university. Mm-hmm. And so, or there's an opportunity again, cost to make more money. The, the thing about yeah, wealth precisely. creation is that people don't understand that wealth creation is done through risk. It's never done without risk. And so, yeah, precisely. and so, so, you know, at, at that level, it might be, it might be leveraging your house or selling your house so that your kid can go to university so that four years later, your family income quadruples overnight. Um, yeah. Things like that. Mm. I mean, again, it's just a case of people sitting in power thinking that because they've earned their degree from a university where everyone thinks the same as them that they have now earned the right to decide and to know what millions of other people actually want to do with their own lives. There is no way that someone sitting in the head office in the South Africa's whatever housing commission or something um, knows what millions of families want and whether they want to live in those houses or other houses. There's no way that they could ever survey that, calculate it, anything. Yeah. But, and, and they're unwilling to let people decide for themselves. It's bizarre. Really bizarre. Yeah, some of it's bizarre and some of it's just uh, sort of a wheelie and stuff. We, you know, the expropriation, for example, is this idea that every black person in this country wants some piece of land, bearing in mind that our population has been moving into cities like every other population on the planet um, for the past 20 years. And um, nobody really wants to be in rural areas and nobody really wants to be a farmer on average. Of course, there are a few people who do want to be farmers and are farmers and we are very grateful for those people. But the, the government, the current sort of selling point is, oh, the, the land must be returned to the people. Yeah. God knows what they're going to do with it because a piece of land 400 kilometers from the center of Johannesburg is going to be completely useless to someone who has a job in Johannesburg. Precisely. And, and the government's probably thinking about this um, in terms of how useful land was, say, 50 years ago, because that's when that's the era people would have studied. That's the era when people would have been really upset about the distribution of resources between whites and blacks in South Africa. Mm. Um, I, I was I don't know. I forget where I was reading it. But the interesting thing about socialist economies is for a very brief time, they do OK <laughs> for a very, very brief time. But what happens is that just like a cloud of smoke, you know, it starts off quite orderly. I don't, you know, when you, I always watch people smoking cigarettes and I find it fascinating because you see the smoke from maybe about 10 inches. It rises um, in completely orderly fashion. And then all of a sudden, the, the physics um, yeah, there's, there's takes sort over of and it, just, it spreads out in chaos. Mm. And you, so, so you get this immediate emergence of chaos very, very quickly, um, almost exponentially. And so that's exactly what the economy is like because you'll have a short period of time when the government can plan everything 
and they, they might have got things right. But then as certain conditions change, for example, as, as the demographics in South Africa change and people want to move to cities, the government didn't take that into account when they made their plan of how the economy is going to work. They planned it for how conditions were at the time. They can never account for all of these unseen things that are going to happen in the future, like people moving to cities. So they're basing their calculations of land allocation on the usefulness of land 50 years ago, not on the usefulness of land today when people want to move to the city and get, you know, um, intellectual jobs, service based jobs. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just one more case. Yeah. I think, uh, in I, in, you know, of, of the government getting stuff wrong. I think that's, uh, that's a fair assessment. I think we, on top of that, have a nefarious, uh, there's other nefarious, uh, uh, sort of motives we have amongst our government and oh, yeah, basically obviously, obviously. just theft of the state because obviously uh, socialism always leads to actually the 1%. Uh, mm. I saw a very, <laughs> the true 1% is, is, uh, is, is in yeah, a socialist state. Precisely. I mean, in the, in a, Free market, the one percent are just economically, you know, inverted commas powerful. In a socialist place, the the one percent are politically powerful. So there's not even like they need to lobby the government. They are the government. Mm -hmm. I went to Kiev earlier this summer, and you know this wonderful socialist paradise. There's this ginormous statue of this Mother Russia kind of figure looking towards Moscow with a huge shield with the hammer and sickle. I've actually seen a photo. It's it's quite impressive that that statue. The locals call her Tintits. It's hilarious. So there's your Soviet ideals compared to your Ukrainian reality. But um, the fascinating thing is that you know amongst this city where you know every you know they're working towards a wonderfully equal society. I want to know why they built these shacks, these twelve, thirteen story shacks for the average Ukrainian to live in. But then once you move towards the center of the town, you see these ornate communist apartment blocks with obviously mass produced, but at least somewhat attractive um, embroidery in the brickwork and everything like that. <laughs> if they really were building a classless egalitarian society, why is it the case that they built buildings, knowing that buildings last hundreds of years, and they built some fantastically for the leaders and some like dog shit for the average Ukrainian. It, it's clearly because the people at the top are going to use their power um, to benefit themselves. That's human nature. And the, the fascinating thing about... This, this is in this Orwell book that I was reading the other day. Um, uh, the fascinating thing about totalitarian regimes of the 20th century mm. compared to previous dis- despotisms is that the 20th century, because it didn't have this backdrop of Christianity and, and this backdrop of questioning human nature, the 20th century forgot the lessons that we've learned about human nature being fundamentally, um, you know, not up to scratch and, and being broken. And it, and it instead conceived of people as perfect. Yeah. And so if it, it, for totalitarian thinkers and governments, it never occurred to them to plan against people using power badly. You see this all the way back in Rousseau. Rousseau has this idea of, um, of the general will, of the idea that once you stop the elite from controlling society and you let the masses control it through... I guess what you could call democracy, mm. then nothing will ever go wrong because yes. people would never possibly hurt themselves. <laughs> when we know that, yeah, people do hurt themselves and they hurt other people and that's what they do when you put them in power. And that's the whole point of having a constitution and having, you know, um, splitting up the different functions of government. And the because the they're not the same and, and people have different wants and needs and what I want might hurt you and what you want might hurt me. And, uh, and, and, and so g- given the power, I might be very dangerous. Yeah, and so you have to create a system where people, where you acknowledge that people have different wants and needs, and you use that for good rather than trying to suppress it for evil, which is always going to be an uphill losing battle. And that system is is freedom and spontaneous order 
and allowing people to do their own thing. As long as you have the rule of law, you'll find that people who want to get rich, the only way they can do that is by benefiting the economy. Whereas when you have a weak rule of law and it can be corrupted, people can get rich just by going into government. Yeah, I think, what was it we were, I think we were um, talking about at this think tank as well. One of the fastest ways to get rich is to become president of Mexico. Because, <laughs> you know, they all, they all make like the, the Forbes 100 list or whatever. Yes. Why is it the case that if you become president, you're supposed to be serving your country, you end up massively rich? And that is the government. Um, that is definitely a zero-sum game. You've definitely got that money from someone else because, as we've talked about, the government doesn't have any of its own money. Yes. It's all hard-working people's money. Yes. So it, it should not be the case that you can get rich off the, back, off the backs of your own citizens. Like that. It makes me sick. But, um, yeah, you, ha- you have to make systems that can account for human nature being bad instead of just dreaming up that it's good, flying a hammer and sickle and shooting anyone who disagrees. <laughs> Sebastian, thank you so much. That was uh, a great hour of chat. I'm sure the listeners will enjoy it. Uh, I love how passionate you are about all of this stuff. Um, (laughs) You managed to piss me off about economics. I'm I'm (laughs) equally so. Don't worry. You're going to go read some Hayek and and stay away from the Rousseau. Uh, Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And I think a good reminder of all the principles in the world that work and don't work. Uh, and perhaps some reading that uh, our listeners can do. Do you just want to punt quickly? I know you on Instagram, you're doing something quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I you've got a, like a, a little book club, up, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, su- I, I'm surprised you found that. So I just, on my Instagram, it's just, it's Seb versus the world, just all underscore, um, sorry, all um, lowercase. lowercase, no underscores yet. And I just, I, I do a lot of reading. I read about two or three books a week. So I thought to myself, I better start either making these ideas available for other people and putting recommendations out or summarizing it in my own mind or both. So that's what I'm doing. And, and if you like that, I guess, go see there. I, I've got some good political philosophy books I'm going to review soon, although it takes me much longer um, to do that. But yeah, just check it out if you like books, I guess. Reading and, is important. And you can also find Sebastian on Twitter, at uh, Seb versus the world. Uh, and yep. once again, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, let me just wrap it up here. Uh, thanks to all the listeners for listening to the show. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore report. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, both the page and the group. The group is where we have discussions about these kinds of topics that I've had a discussion with uh, Sebastian for the last hour. And if you really enjoyed the show or even if you didn't and you just want to throw money at us, uh, we have a Patreon. You can find us on patreon.com forward slash Renegade report. Lastly, if you do listen through iTunes or even through the new Google app, uh, please do leave us a rating. That does help us uh, to get more listeners because the show then gets recommended. And you can also recommend us to your friends and family. Uh, we are experiencing some rapid growth, which we really appreciate. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers. This is cliffcentral.com.